Peter, as you know, is a genius. He's a comic genius, and he's a, a regular genius, too. Peter's the one with, with the, the hard job, or even the job. Peter is kind of a man of mystery. I thought Peter was six feet tall and blonde when I first heard the show. Remember the, the first joke I did that made Peter, like, crack up? At the end of the show, Peter was like, that was fantastic. And I was like, oh, great. Sometimes Peter will ask a question and it's like I haven't heard it. And it's not that I wasn't paying attention. One of the most surprising things I think that people would find about Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is the pink slippers that Peter wears. What's most surprising is how often Peter is the butt of everyone's jokes. I can tell when we're, especially when we're getting on Peter's nerves, is when we blow a joke he has in the script. Have you ever given Peter Sagal advice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he hates me for it. <laughs> Peter loves teasing me now for two decades about the fact that I love to win. Peter Sagal always checks his fly before the beginning of a show. After Bill goes out, he just always reaches down and checks his fly. This is Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. I'm Faith Saley, and this week I'm talking to the man with the magic, the host with the most, the dad who threatens us panelists that he'll turn this car around when we misbehave in the backseat of the Chase Auditorium, Peter Sagal. I like to think of a wee Sagal. When you were a wee Sagal. A wee little Sagalette. What did you want to be? I was a child, I think, who was torn between... Uh, extraordinary self-seriousness that goes back a long way, my friend, and a desperate desire to please. So I was Ooh. one of, yeah, I know, I was one of those kids who uh, was constantly trying to make people laugh and failing and then feeling bad about it. What? Well, I was, I, I actually had this, had this uh, experience recently. I was doing an event and a child came up. He looked to be about in the eighth grade. And he asked me if, uh, he, he wanted to know how to be funny, I think. Well, what, do you have any tips on being funny? And I said, do you tell jokes? He said, yes. And I said, and none of your friends laugh? He said, no. And I said, does the teacher laugh? And he said, yes. And I said, you, my friend, are heading for a career in public radio. Yeah. Because that's, that's my experience. That's what it was? I was, I was I, the teachers just thought I was the funniest guy, and my, and my peers just looked at me as if I was a freak. Because I guess technically I was. But if I had asked you when you were little, mm-hmm. what do you want to be, what would you have said? It depends how little I was. When I was five, I wanted to be a pediatrician because I thought it was pediatrician. Um, and my mother, by the way, who desperately wanted me to go to Harvard Medical School, encouraged this. She was like, oh, yes, that's, that's what it's called, Peter. It's a pediatrician. She was like, please, please, please. Sorry, Mom. Uh, I was one of those kids who uh, found my way to the theater um, because I was socially awkward, and being in a play is a way of being in front of other people with instructions, right? So pretty much as soon as I discovered that, which was relatively early on, I wanted to be uh, an artist slash writer slash... I mean, I went from being wanting to be an actor to wanting to be a director to wanting to be a writer and uh, the mess of those things. You have two brothers. I do. One is a rabbi. Yes. What does your other brother do? He is a lawyer. He's a small-town lawyer in western Colorado, and, of all things. And what, what birth order? Are you uh, the youngest? I am the middle. You're the middle? Yeah. So how... I mean, I hate to go into the Jewish mother stereotype, Please. but she's got a rabbi. She's got a rabbi. She's got a lawyer. She does. She has to be unbelievably proud of you. You're not You're not just an entertainer. You're Peter Sagal. Well, they are now. They were a little worried. Uh, until when? Until, let me think. They were a little worried until, well, let me think. 
maybe two weeks ago when I married a nice Jewish girl. I think. I she think is that I so think nice. She's a very nice we Jewish girl. Her. She's pretty wonderful. But really, until then, I probably would have said that my mother was worried a little bit about you know this whole entertainment thing. They were very worried about me um, in my twenties when I was out in L.A. first, and then in Minnesota, and then New York, pursuing a career as a writer because they were worried that my great uh, potential and the vast expense to which they had gone to allow me to fulfill expl- that thank you was going to waste at and I was what like, point in your life did you feel f- fully um i've made it <sighs> well three weeks ago i married this really nice jewish girl and i'm only kind of kidding so so i i was thinking about that when i was thinking how cool your your job is, how cool your life is, yeah. the things you get to experience, the people you get to meet. Yes. And you always say this. If you've never seen a live show, Peter finds a way of letting the audience know that every week he gets to work with his friends. I do. And you're not just saying that. I'm like not. You have a great time at what, work. How miserable would it be if it were not the case? Right. And I don't think most people can say that. Mm. It, are you used to it? Uh, th- well, it's interesting because you're going to get a different answer now than you would have four years ago. Uh, and what happened four years ago? Four years ago, I was 49. And uh, I, there's something about turning 50, which you will find out someday. Mm. Uh, not I'm lucky. If you're lucky, and not for many, many years. I love you. Um, so I guess my point is, is that my perspective on all this has changed. And I have actually finally, at this advanced age, been able to look around and go, yeah, this doesn't suck. <laughs> the, the, uh, the other, the, and there's another thing, too, and I hate to bring him back up. I've been doing this show for 20 years. Public radio especially public radio produced by Doug Berman, doesn't change very much. And, and that is a, a very important insight that what people want from their radio shows, more, I think, than any other form of art, is they want the same thing every time. So that means that for 20 years, under his guidance, and because of that to great success, we've been doing the same thing pretty much every week. Um, the one thing that has given us new life is the rise of Donald Trump. And not because, as everybody says, oh, the material must be so great. But that's not what I meant. What I meant is, is that we are in a time where people tell us in a number of ways that they really need us in a way that wasn't as, a, a, urgent. as, po- as urgent. Thank you. That's exactly the right word. Uh, prior to this time, people come up to us with real gratitude and they say, thank you for helping us get through the week. We know that we can deal with what we've been deluged with on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, because we know we'll get to your week and hear you guys making light of it and distracting us from it. Both. Is it kind of like part one in, in the before times you were having fun? Yes. And you knew you made people feel good? That's, yes. That's, good that's fine. I mean, you know, and, and, and I had come like... to really appreciate the fact that to be able to do that, to be able to give people a gift of an hour of, you know, that's happiness. That's meaningful. It's right. totally meaningful. Because you have to start. If you're going to talk about this, like the good you're doing in a moment of national crisis, you have to start with an understanding of the limits. We are not changing anything. No, right. We are not going to change the political culture. We are not going to steer the ship of history. We are not going to lead the rebellion. We are not going to pilot fighters for the resistance. We are merely making fart jokes for an hour a week. However, that has a role. And Comfort, the, maybe. Yes. If you're going to mention poop and fart jokes. Yes. 
why do you love them so much? Well, for I mean, and I ask this informed by some producers with whom you work because yes. because our audience doesn't hear all the poop and fart jokes you go through during the week yes. before the show. Like, why is it so funny to you? Here's poop the, and this farts. is actually true, and and this is so strange. So for literally a decade, the dynamic in our office was I hated poop jokes. I was like, no goddamn poop jokes. We are above that. I am not going to go in front of a microphone and speak to millions of people and make poop jokes. I'm just not going to do it. And it became a, a this joke. This Peter. I don't no, know. No, no. And it became this joke around the office that I hate poop jokes. So, for example, it was my birthday about five or six years ago. Again, I was there. You were there. And they gave me a cake <laughs> with poop on it. Beautiful chocolate fondant. The verisimilitude was delicious. It was amazing. They, for my 50th birthday, they commissioned a portrait of me on the toilet. This is how much my hatred of poop jokes and their intense desire to tease me about it played a role in our dynamic. When did you surrender? When Donald Trump got elected. And it's not because I made some calculation that, you know what the nation needs? More poop jokes. I just suddenly found them funny. Donald Trump was like your Metamucil. He really, exactly, as it were. Again, I have been informed by your production (laughs) staff slash friends that that there are some extremely highly produced pranks always at your expense. I don't know how this happened. First of all, why? Why are you 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 being bullied? if, If you could explain to me why this always happens to me, I would love if, like if there was if if you could explain what what it is about me that you, makes people think you explained think, it yourself. You said you're a self serious child. I know. And if, you, if, still, like I, there's something about me that's like you know what we need to do <laughs> stuff that kid in a locker Wedgie. or forty years later take the door off the bathroom and put it on his cubicle, which they did once. <laughs> I walk over to my cubicle and there's a toilet stall door in my cubicle and they're like. <laughs> Yes, insanely elaborate pranks. Like what else? Um, there is, if you walk out in this... Um, uh, I brought it with me. You, I oh, saw you saw it, it. in the hall. Yes, oh my God. What I'm holding, would you like to describe yes. it? Yes, what this is, is people should understand that WBEZ, like a lot of radio or some TV stations or many other places of work, <laughs> have an award wall, a trophy case, where they have put their Peabody Awards for This American Life and their local Emmys and all these other things. And in... This trophy case, for years now, there is what Faith is holding in her hand. She removed it from the trophy case. It is a plaque, a perfectly nice, professionally produced plaque you might get from the local trophy store. And it is a picture of me, a little engraving of me, and it says, The Peter Sagal Award for Excellence in Broadcasting, 2015 recipient, Peter Sagal, NPR, for Excellence in Broadcasting Excellence. (laughs) And it, it, this was even I did my, a double take I know. because I was like, that can't <laughs> And be. they just put it there. They just made it. They commissioned it. <laughs> they paid for it. And they put it there. And, and at first I was like, those sons are... And then I'm like, no. I like awards. I won that one. <laughs> Once for reasons that I to this day don't understand. They ordered, again, at great expense, this is like $300 worth of stuff, they ordered shrimp platters for the entire radio station. And they put them out and they said, Shrimp Day brought to you by Peter Sagal. <laughs> and so I'm walking around and people are going up to me and they're saying, Peter, thank you for the shrimp. <laughs> and, and I've learned by this point. I'm going, at this point I'm saying, I mean, years ago I would have said, what are you talking about? I didn't buy, I think everybody needs to know that this was not on my idea. Now I'm like, oh, you're welcome. 
Coming up, Peter talks about how hosting Wait Wait has helped him through some tough times in his personal life. Some people can be funny when they're angry. Some people can be funny when they're depressed. I can't. I can only be funny if I'm in a good mood. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Atlassian. Today, nearly anything is possible, and if we can dream it, teams can build it. From going to Mars to decoding the human genome, Atlassian is a collaboration software company powering teams around the world. Products like Jira Software, Confluence, Trello, and Bitbucket help teams plan, track, build, and work better together. Atlassian products are free to try, easy to set up, and work seamlessly together. Get started today at Atlassian.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Yahoo Small Business. With Yahoo Small Business, you can easily build a mobile-friendly website for your business, hobby, or personal need in minutes. Select a theme, customize, and launch your business idea online. No coding required. Get the website builder for free when you sign up for a subscription at smallbusiness.yahoo.com today. Welcome back to Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. We hear from a lot of listeners that Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me makes them feel better when they're feeling low. But it's not just you. It's Peter, too. I'm going to be honest with you. The explosion of my marriage was not like all of a sudden this, oh, my God. God, I can't believe these terrible things are happening. Terrible things have been happening for years leading up to that. And um, so there were a lot of times where I came into work and was in no mood to be funny and had to learn that if I got up on stage and let my depression, anger, distraction because of something terrible that had happened, and I just had to learn uh, through repetition and failure to put all that aside. Why did you decide to be nakedly human publicly? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, because I heard, a po- I have to say, I was I was running around the Central Park Reservoir yes. listening to some podcasts, and I came across one. I don't even know why it popped up. But it was you talking at length about being a depressed person. It was called Hilarious World of Depression. And I have known you for years, and I didn't know you are depressed. That's the point. Uh, so this is what happened. I have a good friend. His name is John Moe. And I've known John pretty for years, and he's a really good and serious guy and um, a very funny guy as well. And he started this show that because he had been involved in this issue, something he'd be struggling with. And as he says, one of the things he found out, and you find this out, you find you know this, if you talk to enough comedians, you find out that a lot of them are depressives or a lot of them are struggling with issues. So he said to himself, I'm going to make a show about that. I'm going to invite all my comedian friends who've talked to me about this in private to talk about it in public. And I heard about it and I volunteered to be on it. And the reason I did that was because at one particularly low point, because one of the things you may or may not know about depression, I don't know, you seem like a cheerful person, is it's very isolating Mm -hmm. in that part of it, both it's one of its most profound symptoms is you think there's something uniquely wrong with you, that you are whatever word you want to use, a freak, a a mutant, a a misshapen person because you can't manage the things that everybody else seems to manage quite easily. Seems. Mm -hmm. Very important word, as you say. And suffice to say, at that time, this is now post-divorce and things are going really, really, really badly in a way that actually made me believe there might be something profoundly wrong with me because this problem that I'm going through is really crazy. 
around that time, I ran an interview with Rachel Maddow. And Rachel talked about a lot of the things that I have talked about with you right now, about the fact that no matter what she's accomplished, she felt inadequate, about some days she just didn't feel like she could do it, about some days she felt like completely there's something wrong with her and she was depressed and upset and, you know, and, and just a lot of things that I think, her coming out of her mouth. And I think Rachel Maddow is amazing mm -hmm. and I think she's incredibly smart and obviously incredibly successful and obviously someone who seems to have all these gifts that I wish I had and yet nonetheless, there she was saying these things. And I was like, wow, that's really comforting. I was genuinely comforted to know that Rachel Maddow struggles with the same thing that I do. And I thought, and it turns out, I was correct in thinking that if I said it in the same way, that it would have the same effect on other people. I, I know that you're going to start this answer with some kind of humility or self-deprecation. Yes. I can just edit that out. Okay. What, what do you think makes you so masterful at what you do? I because... am a genius. Okay, fine. Done. Ha! <laughs> what is it that makes me good at what I do? First of all, I I've mean, doing I said it... masterful. You are... And and everybody I've interviewed around you oh God. for this podcast, Can I? Ev everybody agrees that what you do, because you make it, you are graceful, yeah. effortless, usually seamless. That's when people do things that make them seem easy. That's when they're masterful. Well, let me let me try to be honest with you. Um, I have some natural talent. And that's what I started with. And my natural talent is, is that uh, I can be in the right circumstance very quick. Um, my in when I'm in the zone, which happily is usually when we're taping the show. It's mind-boggling to see. I, my my brain just I just have this ability to think a couple of steps ahead and to see things developing. You know the 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 when they talk about like really great athletes, which I am not, uh, they say um, they say that the player, the really great player, be it like I think I heard about a Wayne Gretzky. He doesn't he he doesn't see the play they say of that person, he sees where the play is going to be. And that's why they're so good at what they do. And in some ways, I have an analogy to that gift. It's like something is going on. And as you know, you're say, you're, we're doing something in the show and you're talking, I can be listening to you, hearing what you're saying, but also thinking of what might be a good response mm -hmm. or what might be a good follow-up. That's also true when we're interviewing people. Um, now, I'll say that I can do that. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. A lot of the people we work with are even better at it, like Paula is amazing at that. Then for 20 years, you do the same job, and you get good at it, and you learn things as you go. First of all, my job is not to be funny. My job is to make funny possible, i.e., in my position, if you get the laugh, that's great. Mm -hmm. I don't need to get the laugh. If Paulie gets the laugh, that's great. It's a team win. It's it's a team win. It, exactly. Uh, think of it. You any make analogy, an assist. My exactly. husband does the sports metaphors. Right. Sports metaphors. You know, defenders get they get to they get to win if somebody else kicks the ball in the goal to use the World Cup thing. It's it's for the team. You know, sometimes the best things that happen on our show is when I ask one of you guys, the panelists, a straightforward question. Do you have any experience with this? Yeah. What do you think about that. Yeah. And if you guys, if any of you, come up with an amazingly funny response, that's great. The other most significant thing I learned, and this is something that I constantly credit Doug, that he taught me, that he was absolutely right about, and I needed to learn from him. What people want from the radio, from people they hear on the radio, is somebody they like. Mm. Not somebody who's funny, not somebody who's witty, not somebody who's creative, not somebody who's any other positive adjective, but somebody they like. Like, and that's the job, to be 
somebody that people want to spend time with week after week after week after week. When Carl Castle died, yes. you um, had a beautiful, I guess, obituary for him that well, you had I think they composed. called it a remembrance, but yeah. A remembrance. Okay. Um, I don't know who will compose yours <laughs> in many, 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 many years. Yes. But what do you hope people will say? How do, how do you well, want to be remembered? You know, and, and this has changed. This has really changed. And again, because one of the things I'm talking to you about is not just 20 years of the show, but 20 years of my life of growing from the sort of callow 32-year-old youth I was when the show began to who I am now. And if you had asked me that then, I would have said, well, I hope they say that I did this and I accomplished that. And I, basically, I would, have a- I would have hoped that it was an amazing resume, right, that people had a list. Well, you know, we, we need an extra hour for all things considered to, to describe all the amazing <laughs> things that Peter did and the awards he won. Uh, the thing that I hope people do now is I hope people say that I was a good guy to be around, that I actually made them happier to whatever margin by my presence when they enjoyed it. That's really all that matters. And I think of the radio show as an extension of that, that I hope people think about the radio show like, oh, I enjoyed listening to that guy on the radio show. I enjoyed spending time with him. That's it. That's all you can do in this life is make people feel a little better for your presence. That's it. That's Peter Sagal. And that's it. The last episode of this series. You know, interviewing my colleagues over the past few months folks who have become my friends for the past decade, has made it vividly clear just how much this show has meant to all of us. And it got me thinking that milestones of my life are really marked by wait, wait memories. I I remember an elevator ride with Carl Castle right after I got divorced when he assured me I would find love again because he had. And soon after, I introduced my new boyfriend who swiftly became my husband to the whole cast and crew. And I remember being so pregnant, you could almost hear it on the radio. I remember returning to Atlanta, my hometown, to do the show at the historic Fox Theater. That was where my senior prom was held and no one asked me, so I didn't go. But I got to go on stage and do a show in front of my dad. Wait Wait's been good to me. And you all have been good to us. Thank you for lending us your ears for the past 20 years. Wait Wait Naked and Ashamed was produced by Chiquita Pascal and Annabelle Bacon. Thanks to the entire Wait Wait team for sharing their memories of the show. I'm Faith Saley, naked and unashamed. Here's to another 20 years of pranks, poop jokes, and ruining the week's news for your entertainment. Hi, this is Tom. Tom Baudet? Yes, Faith Saley. Tom, um, you may recall that about a year ago, you and I had an amazing interview. Oh, yes, I was, uh, I, I do remember. It was beautiful. It was beautiful, and we lost the recording, Tom. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. No, really, how did it go? Tom, it's gone. Tell me, this tape didn't go missing, right? You know what happened? It's Nina Totenberg, right? She's behind it. Well, Tom, this is the final episode, and this is the very end of the final episode. So I really do know that everyone wants to hear 
what you feel like your time on Wait Wait has meant to you. Well, in in all seriousness, which is rare for me, it it has been um, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I mean, I've had a wonderful run. I mean, this sort of skydiving with funny, smart people week after week, and it's almost like they curated the people that would be my friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> what What do you hope for in the next 20 years? To live through them would be wonderful. Um, but what I want for the next 20 years for us, our little club called Wait, Wait, um, is 20 just like, just like the last. Week after week, we go up there, we manage to find the fun that's left in the world, and uh, that's what we do. And I think that the next 20 years, um, we should just keep on doing that. Tom, I have loved skydiving with you. And yeah. now I'm just going to make sure we hit record, okay? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. And if I may, would you make a copy of this? Copy that. <laughs> <laughs> 